um, you looked suitably ridiculous. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Hello, everybody. If I haven't met you before, my name's Will. I'm um, Vic here. Sorry, I'm just going to sort my bits out very quickly. Um, Shall we pray? Jesus, I just pray now as we, um, as we just come to, well, as I come to speak, um, we're not all going to speak, thankfully, um, but I just pray that you would just be speaking through me. Anything that's not from you would just kind of um, fall to the ground, and that which is would just sit in our hearts and uh, feed us and draw us ever more into your love, I pray. Amen. Amazing. Um, week four now um, of our, our series this is the final week of our, our series called The, um, the Story, The Rules forgot. Um, if you've missed the last three, I couldn't encourage you more to go and catch up um, with at very least the last two because like, what I'll say today kind of builds on all of those and um, it, it just will be less helpful basically. So um, uh, they're on the website, they're on uh, podcasts, they're on Spotify. Um, so go and catch up. Um, we have in this world had, um, in, in the West in particular, a cultural shift that's occurred over the last 70 years that I would say is at a rate that is without precedence. 70 years ago, if someone was to come up to you and say the phrase, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, you would have looked upon them with bafflement because it just wasn't something that was an experience that was talked about, that was out there, that was understood. It, was, um, you know, it, it just wasn't a thing. You know, In the 1950s, um, there were one person in uh, the UK and one person in the USA total who had undergone gender reassignment surgery. The person from the USA had to have it done in Denmark because the USA, even though it's a massive, you know, well-funded country, did not at that time um, enable it. Um, over the last 70 years, there's kind of been a growing kind of shift in, in people sort of sharing something of their story, their experience and um, and indeed men transitioning, but, but it's been a kind of move that's in, in many ways kind of been at the fringes of culture, it's been at the sides, it's been like this kind of wave building that hasn't quite crested and come in. And, and I think that kind of then, like there was a massive shift in the year 2015 um, when Vanity Fair um, published a magazine on the front page was the, um, the, the kind of, the strap line was Call Me Caitlin. And um, the previously named um, Bruce Jenner um, uh, came out in this, um, this article saying, actually, no, I, I, and I think I'm Caitlin. And, and in that, um, she said, Bruce Jenner, she said, was always telling lies. Caitlin Jenner, she said, doesn't have any lies. Since then, and that's not a very long period, 2015 was not very many years ago, um, the change in kind of public opinion in the West has, has been like at a scale that I think we've, we've never seen before, really. Um, and the trans experience has been one that's been kind of more widely understood, more widely seen, um, recognized, increasingly beginning to be destigmatized, increasingly more visible in media, on television. Um, there's more sort of figures representing that community. That are seen. But the kind of underlying story that, that, that's kind of been told um, it, it is one where people are saying, um, I, I feel that I've kind of been born into the wrong body. Like who I feel I really am does not conform to this body that I, I find myself in. And so what, what we want to do today is we kind of want to look at, uh, we've been looking at this big story, the story we're calling the story of the rules forgot, um, that, that we feel is at the heart of, what it, um, of Christianity, that's a good news story, that's like the story of how God has made us and wants to bless us and wants to draw us into his ways of thriving and love. And we want to have a look today at kind of what that story has to say into this movement. 
And I've kind of been saying over the last few weeks, but um, we've, we've often approached this story as a kind of like story of rules. You know, what's right, what's wrong? Um, are people sinning when they dot, 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 fill in the blank? And uh, God's heart for all of us is for us to flourish in a kind of integrated way within ourselves as he's created us. That comes from right relationship with him, it comes from right relationship with ourselves, and it comes from right relationship with others. Um, and uh, uh, God is not in the habit of setting, well, he's not just in the habit, he does not set arbitrary rules for fun to test us, to get us to kind of prove something to him in terms of faithfulness or whatever. He is trying to simply lead us into integrated wholeness. As the God who made us, so he knows how we, how we function, how we, how, how, we, how we tick, and the God who loves us and therefore wants what's best for us, wants us to thrive. I think when we, when we focus on right and wrong or sin or not, like we put the focus slightly in the wrong place because we miss, I think, therefore, the heart of God in all this, what his intent is. Um, and so I want to start, as I did last week, by saying this. If you are trans, if you have an experience where there is a kind of dissonance between how you feel you are and the body you find yourself in, I think it's just really important for us to lead out with this. God loves you. Um, and as I said last week, if you hear nothing else, hear that. God loves you. Um, I would say that the trans conversation is, is, is quite confusing, um, for many people, it's confusing because it's new, but it's confusing because it's, it's multivaried. Um, the clinical psychologist and Christian writer Mark Yarhouse says that when you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. When you've heard one trans story, you've heard one trans story. Like, it's so easy to kind of monolith this as just like one thing, one experience, and actually it's kind of a multiplicity of different experiences that, that kind of come under a similar umbrella, but each of those stories looks very different and it's telling a different thing. Um, that makes it difficult um, to talk about, but I think there are lots of things that we, we, we can say, um, but it's not helpful, the fact that there's not kind of one guiding narrative. So, um, I want to begin by just defining some terms. Um, first of all, sex and gender. Now then, sex and gender are often used confusingly. If you read anyone writing about sex and gender, you'll find that sometimes they talk about sex, they mean gender, sometimes they talk about gender, they mean sex, sometimes they use them interchangeably in the same sentence, and you're like, what are you even talking about? Um, we've got to understand these terms if we're going to understand what we're talking about. First of all, we're going to go for sex. So sex has historically been used as a biological category that's used to classify the respective roles that human pl humans play in reproduction. There's two categories of kind of male and female. You know, do you have eggs? Do you have sperm? Um, and, and typically, it's dis, um, determined by the presence or not of a, of a Y chromosome. Males um, have, uh, typically at least, um, Y chromosomes. Um, uh, internal reproductive organs that perform a certain role. Um, external sexual anatomy that performs a certain role. And an endocrine system that produces secondary char sex characteristics of a certain type. So in men... You know, muscle mass, um, facial hair in women, breasts, rounded hips, um, the beginning of a menstrual cycle. Um, as defined like that, sex cannot be changed. It is impossible to change your chromosomal makeup. It is impossible to, to, to change your internal sex organs. It, it, it's technically actually impossible to, to change your external sex organs for ones that are able to perform the opposite role in reproduction. You can form something that looks like the sex organ 
um, the opposite sex, but you can't fashion one that operates in the same way. Um, you can alter your endocrine system. Um, am I dropping out? This is like beyond tedious, isn't it? Um, we will swap to blue, Kevin, and we'll see if we'll have any joy. You ready? How are we going? We'll see how we get to that. We can always swap back if it gets worse. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can alter your endocrine system by taking kind of, um, continual kind of hormone supplements. Hold that. That's just going to annoy me. Makes the justification for a new one easy. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can take hormones to kind of alter your endocrine system, but it's kind of always going to tack back to um, a default. Um, Inevitably, there are a, a, a number of people who um, ha, have, a, 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 we classify under the kind of umbrella of, of intersex, sometimes known as kind of differences in sexual development. This is when someone's sex organs haven't developed in a way that we would consider to be sort of typical. Most people who are intersex are unambiguously male or female. Their, their sexual organs, you know, so for example, there's an intersex condition that's called micropenis. It just means that someone has a smaller than usual penis. It doesn't mean that they are a woman. Um, there are a small um, number of people in the intersex community where there is a genuine ambiguity as to whether they are, their sex is male or female, and you know, it is genuinely difficult, if not impossible, to tell. Um, I would say that it, it's helpful to say that those individuals are a kind of mix of the male and female sex rather than a third thing. There's not some kind of third role we can play in reproduction. There's, there's only two roles. So scientifically, it's still male and female. So that's sex. Second is gender. So gender speaks to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. There's kind of two sort of uh, sides to this. Sometimes people mean one of these, sometimes people mean another. Um, the first is gender expression. So gender expression speaks to the kind of social and cultural ways in which people live out and express what it means to be male or female in the world. We often refer to that as masculinity or femininity. You know, do you live out your gender in a, a masculine way or in a feminine way? Um, what those terms mean, I would say, and we're going to get onto this, is often framed by stereotypes. Um, ultimately, though, Defined like this, there are an infinite number of ways to express your gender. Um, you know, there are an infinite number of ways, and typically they're can kind of considered to exist on this scale of masculinity to femininity. Um, the second term is, is gender identity. Gender identity is a psychological term and uh, means this, your internal sense of self as male, female, both or neither. Now, defining that is tricky because what does it mean to feel male, female or neither? We're talking about a subjective experience that's you know, relevant to the individual but therefore how, how do we kind of objectively define that is, is, is a difficult thing. What we need to recognise though, whether or not that's something we can identify with, whether we feel, you know, we can say, oh well, I've got a gender identity that's X, Y or Z. We have to recognise that this is a, a real experience for many. Um, where they have a stated gender identity, whatever that might mean for them. Again, if we define gender in that way, clearly there are a kind of infinite number of possibilities for expressing it because there are an infinite number of um, internal senses of self, just in, in the same way that there are a kind of infinite number of personalities. You know, you can perhaps clump them into groups, but ultimately you could probably reduce it to the level of the individual if you so desired. 
So as we've defined it, sex can't change, but clearly within this definition, gender can. Um, you know, it, it ultimately depends on how you define the categories as to, as to what's, what, what we're talking about. Sex is about observable, objective categories. Gender is more about labeling social, cultural, and psychological experiences, and so therefore is inevitably more changeable and subject to kind of um, cultural malleability. Um, labels change and are used in different ways by different people to express different things at different periods in time at different cultures in the world. Until about the 50s, sex and gender were used synonymously. So people kind of used them to mean the same thing. Um, they, they started to be used separately then. Previously to then, gender might be used um, to talk about like grammatical categories. Um, increasingly today, I would say that where the terms are used synonymously, they generally mean gender. Um, uh, the biological dimensions are often kind of minimized. Um, okay, we've got to define a few more terms. Um, the next is this, trans or um, kind of transgender um, in full. Um, and trans isn't a thing, it's an umbrella term. Um, sometimes it's like trans star on the end. Um, and it's used to describe um, a range of people whose identities and experiences don't conform to their birth sex or fit the traditional gender binary. So um, someone who's trans might, for example, see themselves as truly fe female, but have been born male. Or they might have been more male, but seen themselves as another category from male or female, kind of, altogether. Um, so, to understand trans fully, we've got to understand a kind of subset of it, and um, that's defined by this, this, this term, and that's gender dysphoria. Um, gender dysphoria is when someone experiences distress that is caused by an incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity. I would say that it's pretty hard, if not, I would argue, impossible to really understand it if you don't experience it. Um, like, and I think it's important for us to recognize that how, whatever you, you, you think on it, whatever you sort of perceive of it, it's an incredibly difficult thing for people who live with it. I just want to read out a couple of testimonies um, because I think it just helps capture something of what's going on for the individual. These are from um, Preston Sprinkle's book, which is a great one called Embodied. It's a good um, sort of Christian um, overview of this, this topic. So someone's talked about it like this. They said, it's like some creepy serum injected all over my body to create an odd, numb, yet painful feeling coursing through my blood vessels and seeping into my flesh. My torso and limbs feel static and not from pins and needles. My stomach is always uneasy and my whole body is slightly tensed up, yet tired as, tired as hell from all that time being stiff. A second person put it like this. An electric current through my body that caused my joints to ache, my stomach to turn, my hands to shake, and nausea in the most severe moments of dysphoria. Lying in bed at night, it almost felt like electric currents in my body didn't quite match up. A bit like cramming two wrong puzzle pieces together. Like, whether or not we can get our heads around that, um, or relate to that personally, like, it's just so obvious that that is not a straightforward experience. And, and I think our, our, our first response has got to be one of, of love and compassion and trying to understand, even if we don't understand. Like, that is, like, so difficult to hear that that is the experience that people have of life. So that's gender dysphoria. Where the trans conversation gets a little bit confusing is that you have, there are some people who are trans who are gender dysphoric, so there's a kind of uh, an incongruence that causes them distress. 
There are also people who don't experience gender dysphoria but describe themselves as trans. They kind of, uh, um, you know, saying, hey, this is who I think I am. But it's, it's not coming from a place of um, distress caused by a, a stated incongruence. They haven't got that distress. There are also, to confuse again, non-trans gender dysphoric people. So people who have gender dysphoria but don't take the label trans, who say this is an experience that I'm kind of um, having of life, but that doesn't mean anything more than that. It's just uh, this kind of distress that is caused that I've got to kind of live with, but I'm not kind of making an ontological identity claim as a result of it. Again, as I said, if you've heard one trans story, you've heard one trans story. If you've read one person in the paper, you've just read one person in the paper. There are um, thousands and thousands of stories. So, what, if anything, then, does this kind of story we've been trying to tell, this story of the Bible, this good news story, the story the rules forgot, have to speak into this discussion? I think for starters, it, it, there's this. Like, God's created intent is good. God's created intent is good. Living within his intent is what we're made for. Like, when we kind of reject a part of who God has made us to be, um, in any way, we kind of we miss out on something important. Like, that's God's heart for us. He wants us to live in an integrated way. Like, rejecting bits of who we are is not a good thing for us to do. I want to start by looking at um, Genesis. Again, it's such a key text. We're going to look at Genesis 1 this week. We looked at Genesis 2 last week. It says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, a few things here. So, first of all, what we see here is we see that like male and female is a good thing. This is part of God's creation. This isn't a problem. This isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. And in fact, I think I'd say it is more than that. Male and female here is an intentional thing. Like we're, you know, it says God like makes mankind in his image. We're made in the image of God. Like they, God has created us intentionally. He didn't have to, but he chose to make us as the only creatures on earth that are those who are created in his image, who are created in his likeness. There's something about us that kind of represents and points to something of who God is. Like it's a good intentional thing, our male and femaleness. Again, we see that kind of God creates two sexes. It's a story of two sexes here. They're similar. You know, the, the man and the woman are similar, but they're, but they're also different. The man is not the woman, the woman is not the man. Um, now, some people, when they look at this story, want to kind of say that, like, men and women kind of just here um, indicate, like, end points on a range. Um, you know, if you look earlier in the passage, it talks about um, day and night, um, land and sea. But we know that, you know, you don't just have land and sea, you've got marshes. Um, we know you've not just got, like, day and night, there's also dusk and dawn. There's, a, there's other times of the day. And some people want to say, hey, these are, you know, in the same way that they're just end points on a range, men and females end points on a range. Um, I don't think that's particularly convincing because, like, all those other things, dusk, dawn, you know, marshes, whatever, we kind of see throughout the rest of Scripture. Whereas when it comes to male and female, they're the only categories that we see throughout the scriptural story. But more than that, I think this from Preston Sprinkle is really helpful. Um, he says this, talking about this verse in Genesis. 
In any case, the categories of men and female are primarily biological and not primarily social in the text. Um, the Hebrew terms zakar, meaning male, and nekabar, meaning female, are also paired up to describe the animals who are brought onto the ark to repopulate the earth after the flood. The Hebrew terms zakar and nekabar don't refer to our social roles or our internal sense of self. So what's being talked about in Genesis is sex, if you remember our definition earlier. So, if that's the story, if that's the story that we kind of see in the text here, the question is this. Well, who's God made us to be, and, and how can we know? You know, how, how can we know? Are we male? Are we female? What does that mean? Like, you know, we were, we're, we're living in a kind of, you know, we're, we're all broken. You know, we're all looking for a, a mirror that's slightly kind of, um, you know, misty, and we, we don't see clearly. You know, none of us lives into our humanity perfectly because there's a brokenness to humanity itself. And this, as we've been telling, is it's a redemptive story. It's not a story of sorted people and broken people. It's a story of broken people and broken people. And, and we're all kind of walking with Jesus, um, you know, as he heals us, as he remakes us, as he, as he leads us ever increasingly into wholeness and the fullness of life. Like, he's walking with us every step of the way. He's not looking at us as failures, but he, he's, he's carrying us with him. And so, what is the direction that Jesus is leading us towards? Are we male? Are we female? And how do we know? And how does Jesus lead us into that story? Um, is the answer, which gender do you feel kind of best expresses who you are? You know, because I think some people might look at this and think, oh, hold on a minute. This story feels really, like, restrictive and narrow. Are you saying that basically there's just two ways to be human? Like, come on. Like, there's so much more diversity to the human ex experience than that. I want to say this. I think we see this in Scripture. We see two sexes, but we don't see, as we've defined it, two gender expressions. If you look at David, King David, you've got this mighty king, this warrior, like this, you know, we look at him, we think, oh my goodness, the epitome of masculinity, like, you know, what a hero, like defeating the armies of the opponents of Israel, and we think masculinity, but then it's the same David who, who, who sits down and, and writes poetry and songs and is kind of in touch with his emotions and writes him in beautiful prose, who speaks of his friend Jonathan and, and says, um, like we looked at last week, you know, your love for me is extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And we look at that and we think, well, is he being masculine? Is he being feminine? Which, which is he? Which is the definition? Like, you know, we've got Jael, who's um, a woman in the Old Testament who drives a tent peg to the king of Canaan. Is that a definition of femininity? Is that masculinity? Is she being masculine? Is she being feminine? And we've got Deborah, who's this strong female leader of Israel, um, you know, who, who kind of leads the people again to victory. And then we've got Mary, who's this, like, slightly more quiet, reserved, like, faithful to God, just really obedient, um, you know, maternal figure par excellence that we see in Scripture. Like, which one of those is, you know, a definition of masculinity? Which one of those is a definition of femininity? Which one do we look to? Like, you know, Jesus himself talks of, about himself as a mother hen gathering chicks. You know, he cries when his friend Lazarus dies, and then he goes and manufactures a whip and goes into the temple to kind of drive out the people who are there. He dies on the cross and beforehand sweats blood and carries his cross. Like, what does masculinity and femininity look like in the scriptures? What are the definitions? The answer is this. It's never stated. But what we see is we see a range of expression. 
we see a range of expression. And I'm going to attempt a definition. I can't remember where I heard this. Um, but I think the best definition of masculinity and femininity is this. Masculinity and femininity is defined by who is doing the act. If a man is doing something, are they doing a masculine thing or a feminine thing? They're doing a masculine thing. If a woman is doing something, they're doing a masculine thing or a feminine thing? Well, they're doing a feminine thing because they're a woman. If a woman and a man are doing the same thing, then they are doing something that is both masculine and feminine. Like it, it, the, Who is doing it defines the act. I think too often in our culture, we have given people overly rigid boxes of masculinity and femininity to operate within. Like, no wonder that people want to kind of invent other boxes or transgress the box that they find themselves in. The problem is the box. They're stereotypes. They're not definitions. They're, they're things that might conform to a majority that might have come, you know, through kind of the ways we are socialized and, you know, enculturated to, to, to typify a majority, but they don't typify everybody. You know, today we will sort of talk about blue being a bit more male a color, pink being a bit more female a color. Wind back in history, the opposite is true. You know, depending on where you are in the world, are you wearing a skirt or are you wearing a kilt? Um, I would argue that the difference between the two is not that great when you look at it aesthetically. Like, they're stereotypes that we're operating with, and I think we have got to bust and break the stereotypes that restrict people and make them feel like they've either got to kind of conform to this rigid thing or break out of it. The problem is the stereotypes, and we've got to make the church a place where diversity of expression is celebrated and not crushed. When we say things, and, and this happens far too often, like generalities, where, like we say things like, oh, men are less emotionally attuned, or women enjoy a good shopping trip. Men like beer. Women like white wine spritzers. We speak the most unhelpful, ridiculous nonsense over people. We speak lies. Like when we do that, what we do is, is for those who don't fit the stereotype, who may well be a small number, they may well be a minority, but we, we shame them. We shame them. We make them feel like they're not really proper men or they're not really proper women. They're manly women, and so therefore are kind of inferior. Or they're, they're, they're womanly men, and so therefore are kind of less than, um, than everything they should be. Like, when we do that, we shame and we ostracize. Like, to be honest, if a, if a man wants to, to, to dress in more flamboyant clothes, wear something more spikely, or, or wear a bit of makeup, and have more stereotypically feminine interests like ballet or musical theater, like... Why can't we, instead of shaming or ostracizing that person, welcome and celebrate the way in which they help us see a broader range of masculine expression, therefore kind of enriching us in the process? When everyone is the same, life is dull. God has created us with a beautiful diversity. Now, I do not want to collapse the trans conversation into an issue of gender stereotypes because it is far greater than that. But I do not think they help. It might be a tiny minority, but that some people's story seems at least to be, and, I, and again, I'm saying it might well be a tiny minority, that people struggle to see themselves as their birth sex because they don't seem to fit the stereotype that culture is projecting upon them. And therefore, they think, well, I must be something else. I must be something else. When we too tightly define the boxes, we force people to create a new box, choose a different one, or 
to kind of just live oppressive in a kind of oppressive conformity with a stereotype. Masculinity and femininity is defined by who is doing the act. The question, I think, in, in the scriptures, where there is one in our story, is this. Are you in your expression trying to reject something of who God has made you to be? Or are you simply trying to live out who God has made you as male or female in perhaps a, um atypical way? So we're back again to our question. And our question, who are we? And how do we know if we are male or female? Because if the answer to how do we know if we're male or female can't be reduced to simply stereotypes, do you identify with typically male behaviors and interests or typically female behaviors and interests? What, what, how, do we, how do we do it? How do we know who we are? The story you've been telling over the last few weeks, um, if you've been tracking with us, is, is one of many things, but it's a story of who, what it means to be human. And what we've been saying within this story of what it means to be human, we said week one, we said that your body is the real you. It's not that the real you exists within and your body is just something that gets in the way of the real you. Your, your body is the real you. Like, we don't live in a casing. Our body is part of who we are, part of who we are as a person. We will never live in the scriptural story in a disembodied way. We're never going to just be a soul floating around the clouds in heaven. Like, resurrection is a bodily resurrection. We don't get shot of our body. It remains part of who we are. And the other thing we saw is that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we said that kind of what we do with our body, therefore, because it's a temple, has spiritual consequences for good or for bad. Like, we don't just do what we want with our body. Um, We don't do you know, things thoughtlessly with our body. It's not some kind of playground to just be enjoyed as we see fit. It's, it's a temple. And we honor a temple in kind of honoring the way in which God has intended it to be. I find the way Preston Sprinkle puts um, our question helpful. He puts it like this. He says, the question about human identity from a Christian perspective is not so much who we think we are or our internal senses of self of who we are, our internal senses of who we are, but who God says we are. Who God says we are is the most important thing for us finding who we are and living in a holistic, flourishing way in this world. And I think what we can say from our story is this. The body is saying something about who we are. It is an identity marker, and therefore it it has to be saying something about who we are as male or female. In fact, I would argue, and go home and try this, that it is all but impossible without appealing to gender stereotypes, to give a disembodied definition of what it means to be male or female. Try it at home. Um, Our body, in many ways, is the kind of only objective difference between male or female. Conversely, like, the story of the scriptures tells a story that, you know, about our desires, that our desires are not always described as kind of reliable indicators of truth or life. We can desire good things, Um, and truthful things, but we can also desire things that um, are not good for us and are not good for those around us. And those things can feel very natural, they can feel very normal, but they don't necessarily lead to the fullness of life. So, if that's the story, that's really easy for many of us. But what about those we talked about earlier who experience gender dysphoria? Because the issue for them is that they have an incongruence Their body is part of the problem as they experience life. I think there are two questions for those who experience gender dysphoria. I think the first question is this. Who am I? Perhaps to put it another way, who is God saying who I am? 
And then the second question, which is informed by the first, is how do I manage my experience of dysphoria? Um, I like the way Preston Sprinkle phrases this. You know, if there is an incongruence between our embodied biological sex and our internal sense of self, our gender identity, which one determines who we are and why? Because to pick one arbitrarily, at the very least, we've got to admit that that's an arbitrary decision. Why is one more determinative of our identity than the other? And, and why is that? What I will say is this. I'm not going to be more clear than this, but I will say this. Given that your body is the real you, and so is saying something about your identity, and given the subjective and unreliable nature of our desires and feelings, we have to, again, the words of Preston Sprinkle, we have to at least be open to the possibility that our bodies might be a better reflection of how God identifies us, even though our minds disagree. I want to read that last half again, because um, it's phrased carefully. We have to at least be open to the possibility that our bodies might be a better reflection of how God identifies us, even if our minds disagree. One thing I am certain of um, is this. I don't think the cultural script that says the body is something that doesn't matter, that says that the body doesn't say anything and essentially is just willing to kind of toss it in the bin, kind of that says the real you is just this thing on the inside and doesn't listen to the body, I think that story is missing something of who we truly are. Like, I don't think ignoring part of who we are is going to lead to the wholeness of life, uh, wholeness and the fullness of life, regardless of how difficult it is to kind of work out and manage how we resolve that tension. I don't think we resolve that tension well by just simply discarding something, um, certainly not without careful thought and reflection. But I think however you answer that question of who I am, we've got to recognize something, and that's this. The reality of managing dysphoria is incredibly challenging. This isn't a made-up experience. This isn't something that someone can just turn off or on. And I think our default and first response to those who experience gender dysphoria in this world has got to be one of love and support. Regardless of how you answer the question, it's going to be incredibly difficult. You know, if you answer the question by saying, I am my gender identity... That will likely mean some level of transition. That could be social, which means changing your name, um, your, uh, in the way you dress and present in the world. Um, it could be medical, which means you take hormone supplements. Um, it could be uh, physical, which means you undergo surgery. Um, research shows that, that while transition often minimizes dysphoria, it doesn't necessarily get rid of it. Um, you know, trans people who have transitioned still have, on average, much, much higher um, levels of kind of mental health difficulties than the kind of population at large. Um, living post-transition is not easy socially. Um, you know, people can struggle sometimes with not passing, um, not being kind of recognized as the gender that they present, which can be an incredibly distressing experience. Uh, relationally and therefore particularly romantically, it's incredibly difficult to find um, partners. Medical transition has permanent effects health-wise, including things like, um, you know, you need to continue to take medication. It's got increased risk of things like DVT um, and high blood pressure. For most people, it will mean permanent infertility. Um, and surgical, uh, surgical um, procedures can often come with many complications and difficulties. Like, it is not an easy path. By contrast, the opposite path, if you say, hey, my body is who I am, 
is also incredibly difficult because it will mean, likely, a continued struggle with that experience of dysphoria that we kind of, you know, uh, shared some testimonies of earlier. You know, it will make life an incredible, you know, incredible, almost intolerable struggle for some. What I think we need to acknowledge is this. I think we need to not acknowledge that trans people exist. They're not silly. They're not making something up. They're having a very real experience of life. We've got to recognize, secondly, that they are loved by God. And if you're here today and that's your experience of life, know this. You are loved by God. Um, they're people who have a unique and challenging experience of life. And, and, and they need love and support far more than they kind of need kind of rules and regulations spoken over them. I want to end with some questions. Um, I'm leaving it a bit more open-ended than I perhaps normally would. Um, I'm doing it on purpose. A few questions. So first, are we listening, all of us, to who God is saying we are through our bodies? If we're not doing that, are we missing part of our true story? Are we missing part of our true identity? Second question, irrespective of what we think, where we land on this, given what we've said about masculinity and femininity and stereotypes, can we not at a minimum support and champion those who, who perhaps they're not making an ontological identity claim, um, but they're simply trying to manage their dysphoria by adopting an atypical gender presentation? So Preston Sprinkle in his book tells the story of his friend who, who, who struggles with you know, acute levels of, of, of dysphoria. Um, and to manage that, um, she dresses in a, in a very androgynous way. Um, they uh, cut their hair short um, and they use gender-neutral pronouns, which is grammatically unusual, but it's not grammatically completely incorrect. Um, we would talk about someone if we didn't know who they were in that way. Um, you know, that's a way that person is trying to manage their dysphoria. Can we not like champion and stand beside people who are doing that rather than kind of just viewing them as strange because they're doing something that doesn't perhaps fit the normal categories we, we often see kind of lived out by most people? Can we honour people as they present to us as a basic act of simple hospitality? So regardless of what we think, you know, if someone presents to us as Mike rather than Brenda, who we knew them as a month ago... Can we receive them as such, irrespective of our views on their identity? It's just a simple, basic act of hospitality. In the same way that, you know, my name is William, I'll be really cross if someone calls me that. My mum calls me that, that's where it starts and ends. Like, you know, I'm Will, that's just how I, you know, choose to present myself to the world. And when people don't honour that, regardless of whether they're right or not about, you know, my real name, or like, it's just rude. I, 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 don't, I don't feel like I want to talk to them. I want to just walk away from them because I'm just like, you're just being rude. Can we not welcome people in that way as a basic act of simple hospitality? Lastly, irrespective of what we think, can we stand in unconditional love and support by those who make identity claims and life decisions that perhaps we've got questions about, recognizing the incredible difficulty of their experience and their decision? Media portrayals stop us from seeing this sometimes, but um, the vast majority of trans people are not some kind of subversive group who are trying to kind of upend society, reject God, you know, um, make flippant decisions about their bodies. These are people who have a uniquely challenging experience of life and are simply trying to find a way to flourish in a world that's, you know, got a million competing stories and doesn't necessarily help. Can we not stand beside those people, regardless of the decisions they make, regardless of whether we agree with them or not, 
like recognizing that we're all on a journey of redemption, that we're all kind of work this out. We're all trying to broken, even if we disagree. Can we stand beside them in love and support regardless? We're ending our series today. Um, I just want to close out with this, a final word. All of us are in process on this thing of sex and sexuality. You might not feel it. You might be kidding yourself. Um, but we're all in process. We're all broken. Maybe you don't realize it. Maybe you're acutely aware of it on a daily basis. All of us are kind of wrestling with God as to how we live in his way in the world. But there is a big good news story here, a story at the heart of the Bible. It's not a story of just simply rules, but it's a story of a God of love, a God who loves you, a God who made you and is simply trying to lead you and draw you into his love. Whatever you think, lean into him. Trust his love, trust him, and trust him to guide you and lead you into his ways of fullness, whether or not they're ones you kind of instinctively think yes to or no to. Like, let him guide you and let him lead you ever more further on to enjoy relationship with him that you have been created for. And I'll end by just, um, by just praying. Jesus, Thank you that your love for us is always one that's well out of condition. You love us in the, in the messy, you know, mess that is life. That every single one of us kind of fumble through, um, although we try and pretend to one another that that's not really what's going on beneath the surface. It is. And Lord, I just thank you that you stand beside us in that. You're not standing over anyone in this room right now, wagging a finger, ticking us off. You're standing over all of us with your arm around us, just wanting to love us, just wanting to lead us ever further on to wholeness. And Lord, I just pray over all of us that you would help us live ever more into this story. To be people of love and to be people who, who, who kind of take the next step into who you've made us to be, whatever that means, however difficult that is, however difficult it is to even work out what that is. Lord, I pray that you would help us on that journey, I pray. We need you. Amen.